What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Posh. I'm Pat. And this is our first virtual podcast interview. Uh, we've been doing this for two and a half years, and we always do it in person, even when it's just me and Pat. Uh, so we're excited that Melanie and Darian, the co-founders of Brella, are our first virtual podcast guests, and hopefully we'll meet in the future soon when things go back to normal. But thank you guys so much for being accommodating and uh, you know being on the show with us. So it's great to talk to you guys. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. Thank you. So why don't we just kick it off with, uh, and maybe we'll go one by one, feel free to choose who wants to go first. Uh, tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and uh, what you guys did before uh, starting Brella. Sure. Yeah, I can start. So this is Darian. Um, so my background is actually in architecture. Um, I worked as an architect in New York and in LA uh, for the last 12 years prior to starting Brella. Um, and, you know, a big Part of actually my motivation um, in starting this company had to do with my experience at my last job, which was working at a large corporate firm called Skidmore Owings and Merrill in New York. So until that point, um, I had worked in more boutique firms. I had worked for Rem Koolhaas, who is a well-known Dutch architect. Um, I had done my own projects, and I found myself a few years ago at SOM in New York working on large mixed-use developments like Hudson Yards and Manhattan West. Um, mm -hmm. And these projects are really like cities within a city. And so there was a lot of conversation about, you know, the future of retail, the future of real estate development in general, what types of uses are relevant to the built environment in real life versus what types of transactions mm -hmm. and experiences can happen online. Um, at the same time, I had had my first son, who was at that point a toddler and was pregnant with my second child, and really struggled on a day-to-day -day basis with childcare. And I thought, you know, it was super interesting that, you know, on one hand, every other industry was sort of being considered or reinvented in terms of the future of X. It was becoming more streamlined, more integrated with every other facet of life, but childcare hadn't been updated in so long. And so, you know, I started thinking about this from my own experience, um, but within the context of looking at a lot of those macro trends that were informing my work um, and really wanted to think about, you know, what would childcare look like if it were actually designed for the needs of today's parents and parents in the coming generations. Right. Um, and so at that point, you know, I had actually been connected to Melanie through a mutual friend. We were set up on a blind date um, <laughs> and, um, and she can explain her background. But, you know, for me, it, it had to do with, with that personal experience, seeing that need kind of at a larger scale. And lastly, kind of how that could actually inform the built environment and the future of cities? Like, could there be a model of childcare that could be, you know, an anchor amenity as opposed to a use that gets marginalized in a church basement or in a rec center or in a suburban, you know, neighborhood? Um, so at that point, we were set up, and this was about three years ago. And Darian, before we get into how you two met and 
you know, how Brella and everything else came to be. How did you enjoy being in the architecture space? I mean, like I went to Hudson Yards last year. It was obviously just a magnificent site. And obviously, you know, you say a city within a city. It, it literally was. But how was it like working on such large scale projects like that and living in a city like New York and raising a toddler, you know, there? Yeah, I mean, it was, to be honest, it was really hard. Um, I mean, I came into that project specifically kind of later on, and I was a technical architect. So I was dealing, um, you know, at that point, it was well under construction. And so it was about construction administration and starting to see some of that tenanting action, which is where a lot of these conversations were coming from. But personally, I found that you know, there were a lot of benefits to being in New York with a young child in terms of cultural access, the sense of community, but there was no purposeful placemaking for families. There were so few places that were actually felt comfortable and accommodating and engaging for children and adults at the same time. You know, they're either fully kid spaces or adult spaces. And there was this lack of, you know, I think really intentional, really exciting placemaking um, for families with young kids that would make cities like New York or like many other cities more livable uh, for families with young kids. Yeah, I met Darian at a really critical moment in my life. I had just moved out to Los Angeles from New York as well. Um, I had had my first child, was about to have my second or getting close to having my second. And um, yeah, I had already had him and uh, I was sort of in career limbo. I had not found it easy to find a new career in a totally new city. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with a lack of support. So my background's actually in marketing. Um, I started my career in advertising, working for brands like Schick and Energizer and Johnson and Johnson. Uh, I went to business school and then ended up at Bravo, where I did a lot of marketing and digital media work, and then ultimately landed at an Amazon subsidiary called Quidzy, where I worked with brands like Soap.com and Diapers.com on their marketing initiatives. Uh, so at the time when I came to LA, I was sort of unmoored, and I was struggling to figure out how to start a new career. And the biggest challenge that I was facing was childcare and not really feeling comfortable justifying the expense of getting a nanny so that I could either start my own business or, you know, do the interviewing or kind of actively get back into work. And I think when Darian reached me, I was at such a moment of crisis. And when she kind of posed this idea of rebuilding childcare, and really starting from the ground up, I got so excited because childcare was such a limiting factor in my life. And it really felt like something that needed to be built from start or from scratch. And that seemed like a really cool puzzle. It seemed like a really exciting marketing challenge. It seemed like a really cool opportunity to create a new experience. And these were all things that I love to do. So I think it was just a really serendipitous opportunity. You talk about, you know, rebuilding childcare. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what that looked like from your lens? I mean, Pat and I don't know, but 
what was that environment like? I mean, what was or what were the options uh, beyond having a nanny that were available to parents? Yeah, it's actually pretty simple. So, you know, the childcare systems that we have all sort of started around the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and they've existed since then. Um, so at the simplest form, there are babysitters and nannies that, you know, are independent contractors that you find, that you create a contract with, um, and that you bring into your home and they care for your children. And then at the next sort of level, there are center-based care. So there are daycares, preschools. These are all licensed child care centers. They go through a licensing process with the state. Sometimes they're located in homes. Sometimes they're located in more commercial buildings. Um, and those are historically, you know, more educationally focused. Uh, but what we found was really frustrating about all of these models was that they tended to require some sort of long-term commitment, whether that's a contract that you have a year-long tuition you're paying at a school, or even a commitment to a nanny that you're going to have her on the books for the next you know, month or so. Um, they also were pretty limited in their scheduling capacities. So with a school, you are locked into the school schedule. So that might be Monday through Friday, nine to five. It might be Monday through Friday, nine to one. Um, but you're locked into that. And then the last thing is that if you don't use it, so maybe you take a vacation, maybe your kid is sick for a week, you still have to pay. And that's one of the most challenging things for families. Childcare is the second biggest expense for families after their housing. And every bit wow. counts. And so if you don't use it, to have to still pay for it feels like something, you know, that is so archaic and punitive at this point. Yeah, I mean, like. It, it's so restrictive, like all of those facets that Melanie described. And meanwhile, life has become more and more dynamic, more on demand, more on the go. Every other service and consumer industry has become more about access, that ownership. I mean, everything's gone in that trajectory and yet childcare has not. And so it's become a real friction point when we've looked at, you know, how work behaviors, office policies have evolved to allow parents, for instance, more flexibility, which is a great thing. But if your childcare is not flexible too, then it's pointless, right? So what we really wanted to do was break open that framework, which is was seemed really dated compared to how people are living, and allow families to access great care essentially on their own terms. So on their own schedule, they can book and pay by the hour. Um, they can do everything through an app as opposed to these paper applications and paper check payments, which is which still is really the status quo for most centers. Um, and that it would be physically convenient within cities and communities. And so bringing it back to that built environment and that kind of space proposition that it's not, you know, a remote location you're driving to, that we are at the heart of mixed use neighborhoods where families are already spending their time. So here you two are, like you first meet for the first time. And then what do you talk about in that first meeting about Brella? Like, was it even called Brella? Like, what was the idea, the vision? How, how are you going to get this started? Um, did you need funding? Like, tell us a little bit about that initial sort of phase. Yeah, we had some 
I mean, we had to get to know each other a little bit. Um, I think actually our first meeting, I was still living in New York. I was in the process of moving my family back to LA. We had lived in LA um, prior to moving to New York. I mean, I came into it with a lot of skepticism. So so a, a friend of ours, so somebody I had worked with at Quidzy introduced us. And it was in a really weird way. She just randomly emailed me one day. She said, I want to introduce you to Darian. She's opening or she's starting this business and you should be her co-founder. And it felt out of the blue. Um, and I, I was coming into this with a lot of skepticism or anxiety around like what a co-founder relationship could be like. Uh, I had seen a disastrous co-founder relationship that ended really negatively uh, with some good friends of my husband and mine and kind of went into this thinking, oh my gosh, we, I need to like kick the tires on every aspect. So I feel like I put Darian through a crazy <laughs> set of ringers, like really early on. I wanted to like insert conflict as quickly as possible to see how we would manage it and what would happen. And I think that was okay, although it really set us on a on a path of being super professional and focused and project like problem solving. Um, and it took us a long time to break through that and like become friendly and friends with each other. So you know, you always hear, you know, when co-founders come together, they always say it's good to have you know spread out the roles and and you know the responsibilities so that way that you're not clashing and um, you're you're working efficiently. Did you guys have that conversation? Did you have like certain specific responsibilities that you each were going to do? Or was it just like, let's just start working, let's put it out there, and then we'll figure it out once that time comes? We yeah. had that conversation. We were very official about our roles. And we made a really hilarious matrix, like in our third meeting, probably, <laughs> of who was going to decide, like be the decision maker in different categories, and then who the tiebreaker would be. And at that point, it was very early. Yeah. Others in that stage, which was hilarious. Um, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, we we have different backgrounds and skill sets, but there are quite a few areas that do overlap. I think when it comes to the brand, um, you know, that's something that I think we both feel really strongly about in terms of the messaging and the design and that, you know, we work really closely together on. And there are other things that obviously we're you know, just in our own lanes, kind of heads down managing. Um, but it's also a work in process. Like it was very different uh, pre-launch, you know, what that division was. And then once we opened our doors, that's had to adjust and it continues to do so. So, I mean, I think that the main takeaway would be kind of continuing to check in around that matrix and reevaluate it, you know, monthly, honestly. You know, I'm curious, a lot of the people that we sit down with and talk to, you know, they're all founders, but for the most part, a lot of them wanted to be entrepreneurs from like day one, you know, they went into it and, you know, left college or dropped out of high school, whatever their story was, their path was entrepreneurship from what I've learned so far. I mean, it doesn't seem like that was the first priority for either of you, maybe more for Melanie because she went to business school. But did you both ever think that entrepreneurship was something that you would eventually pursue? Definitely not. And it's funny, I was surrounded by entrepreneurs and I always felt like that was not something I wanted to do and that I didn't have the personality for it. 
I think I, you know, know that I'm somebody who thrives on a lot of praise and success. And I know that, well, now I know officially that (laughs) entrepreneurism is rooted in failures and rejections. And, you know, I I really kind of thought that I would never Mm -hmm. succeed in an environment like that. And so I never had any interest in it. I, I liked the idea of creating experiences. And so I enjoyed working in startup like environments, but I never wanted to be the, the person that had to drive that. So it's been a big change for me, for sure. I've seen it. I've seen the inside of these companies. Um, I've seen what it's like to start a company. Uh, and it honestly didn't have a lot of allure for me, ironically. Yeah, I mean, it was not my world at all. And, and I think that's part of why, you know, one of the things that was really interesting in initially connecting with Melanie was kind of having, you know, her insights given that perspective. But, you know, I had worked for a lot of different types of clients, um, you know, at different firms. I had worked, obviously, for entrepreneurs, for different companies, for institutions, for government agencies. And, you know, it wasn't something that was really on my radar at the beginning, but I found that sort of by the time I was, you know, at that transition of uh, thinking about starting a business, I realized that was really what I was doing was, you know, what I was good at in architecture was taking, you know, a brief, maybe a context, parameters, different constraints, and synthesizing that into you know, another version, in most cases at that point, it was a, nut, a physical version of a, of a vision or a number of factors, but it was about synthesis and then kind of manifesting that, bringing that to life in the world in a different form. And so I was doing that and that's really where my strength was. I was always, you know, in the very heavy, on the early stages of projects, kind of taking all the information and then kind of setting the course of the design vision for that and then how that would play out, you know, across scales or even organizing our team internally. Um, and so it was interesting because I was trying to figure out, well, do I keep doing this in architecture? Do I, do I really need to just be working on buildings or is it more of a conceptual, you know, practice and what other forms can that take? Right. So, so, um, kind of going back, like after you've had this vision, um, and you meet and you're, you're both on the same page, what was the first order of business? Like, did you have to get the physical space? Um, did you have to get the word out? Like, how did you go about getting the ball rolling? No, I actually, the, the first thing we actually did was build a model, which feels really against everything that we do. Right. I mean, neither of us are financial, um, and I think that was a really interesting place to start for us. But you know, we really wanted to make sure that this business would work. And you know, we had spoken to a lot of people, and you know, people who had been in childcare, who had potentially even tried to do what we were doing, and their first comments to us were, "This will never work. It will never be profitable." And so I think that was the first test we needed it to pass. And so we. We brought on um, a financial analyst who, you know, I think we paid him like $500, which felt like a billion dollars at the time because it was our own money. And we sat down with him and we built this ridiculous model. Um, But a lot of that is actually what we use today. And a lot of it has actually come 
to be true and, and accurate, which is cool. But, you know, it, it was not fun and it was pushed us out of our comfort zone, but it was, I think the rigor we needed to feel confident to move forward. What was your solution to childcare before launching this? And what was the <laughs> main problem that you, you know, I guess were going out to solve and what did it look like on day one? I mean, I would say between Melanie and I, we have used every possible childcare solution out there. Um, in the days of actually working on Brella, at that point, I had quit my job. Um, and when we met, I was eight months pregnant with my second kid. So that first year of working together, I was, you know, had a baby on my lap most of the time. Melanie then got pregnant with her third child. So we were surrounded by children in building this business. Um, and it was very meta because, you know, especially in the early days of fundraising and taking all different kinds of meetings, our schedules were wildly unpredictable and erratic from week to week. And finding any type of childcare solution that would meet those needs was incredibly challenging. So for me, I had a combination of my mom who would come into town for weeks at a time, uh, you know, a network of babysitters, my husband. Um, but it was chaos. And I think that also really fueled the fire of wanting to solve this problem because life is dynamic. More families than not have those types of needs. And there should be a version of really great care that you can access when you need it. Yeah, there were a lot of investor calls we were on where we were muted for most of the time because we had children on our laps or we were literally breastfeeding. It was super awkward. And, and they would be telling us, oh, parents don't need childcare, you know, and you're sitting there with a child on your lap, like begging and hoping that they'll be quiet when you have to answer a question. And, you know, the reality is just presented in such a visceral way. And it's so motivating and also so inspirational. I mean, so much of this business is built off of our own personal need uh, for childcare that could literally be on demand. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about those initial like investor calls. Like wh when did you, I guess, so you go through the financial model, it looks good. You know, you want to pursue this. Um, now you, I'm assuming presumably you have to raise money to start the venture. Um, how, like we hear about Silicon Valley and we hear about venture capital and that whole world. And it's predominantly, you know, males. I can understand like why it might've been difficult, you know, in those early days. So tell us about those like discussions and um, how it ultimately turned out. Yeah, <laughs> it was it, a roller coaster. It ultimately turned out well. Yeah. Um, we were able to raise $3 million, um, but it was not by any means a beautiful process. And I would say, mm -hmm. you know, what's really interesting is how long it was. And, you know, when we were in it, we would never admit it, but it was probably close to a year and a half of actual, like from our first ever investor call to, you know, when we actually closed the round and there was a huge learning curve. And, you know, I think we didn't have any really kind of negative experiences that you often hear a lot of females going through. Um, and I think, you know, we could talk a lot about some of the support that we actually got from a lot of male investors. And, you know, um, so I think that was really positive. What I think was really frustrating for us was just, you know, how naive we were at the beginning of the process and how much we would have benefited from people being really honest and helping us and helping us, 
you know, fix our deck and make sure our story was tight. And, you know, it took us a very long time to get the story to a place where, you know, we really understood and could answer questions confidently and really, I think, instill the confidence in an investor. So a lot of it was maybe necessary for us to go through. You know, it was really good. And it also, you know, built our network of, you know, advisors right. and strategic relationships that are critical to the business now. So I, there were a lot of silver linings. I mean, we were lucky to have some early supporters, you know, some early angel investors, mostly from the real estate world that I think saw the potential in you know, a new version of childcare. Um we had a lot of big disappointments kind of in the middle of the process where, especially in uh, pitching to VCs where we thought, you know, we would be able to raise more capital from, you know, a single investor than we thought. And at a certain point we realized, you know what, we're going to have to cobble together millions of dollars through twenty-five to $50,000 checks. We're just going to have to scrape our way there. And, um, and I think once we kind of accepted that, then it started flowing, you know, and it wasn't as there wasn't so much friction. We, we like Melanie said, we got the story right. We understood the rhythm. Um, yeah, it was, it was a process. So and then what do you do next? Like, so, um, I'm assuming you, you get a space um, and then you start marketing and getting the word out there. Is that was that kind of like the next step? Yeah. We actually identified the space pretty early and we really needed the space in order to raise for this use. We needed to show that we had a lease. We needed to show investors what the terms were and how that worked with our model. So, you know, it was important. I think the door started started to be unlocked when we had the space and we had our branding and then, you know, people could really get it. But, but to your question about sort of how did we open this? What's super frustrating or, or a challenge in childcare is that if you want to be licensed, you cannot market your business until you get your license. And, you know, the way the license works is that you get the license when you've completely built it out, when every toy is in every room. So basically, when you're ready to open, you get your license. So we didn't really have the ability to do a lot of pre-marketing and pre-sales. We... We probably did a, a little bit, even though we weren't supposed to. We, um, but most of that was really on the ground. We just basically moved into this, you know, shopping center that we are in right now, the runway, and we had events. We went to the farmers market and set up booths at the farmers market and stood there in the like beating sun day in and day out, and you know, just told people about us. But it was very guerrilla. There was not really a lot that we could do. Um, until we were actually licensed and open in terms of driving people to our business. What is Brella and how is it different than other childcare options that are out there? I mean, whether there are parents listening or you know, future parents or whoever it may be, what and how does Brella work? Yeah, so it actually, it, it kind of starts with our app, which we haven't talked about at all. Um, so usually like with conventional centers, you know, you find out about a daycare in your community, you inquire. Typically, there's a six-month to year-long waiting list. You sign up. A lot of people sign up while they're still pregnant or expecting, and you hope that you get a spot. And then once you get a spot, you're locked in because you know you're going to go to the back of that list. And we wanted to cut through all of that. So a big part of that 
was building our app, which allows families to literally, once they input, you know, critical information about their child, their age, et cetera, go in and immediately just schedule hours of care directly without any of those steps. Um, and that was really huge. One, to kind of simplify access, simplify the booking process, make it customizable, let people pay through their app, just kind of cut through all of those barriers. Um, and then, you know, I think the licensing thing, which we should talk about a little bit more, the reason it's so important is that if a center is not licensed, parents legally cannot leave the premises. Um, and so in order for it to be a robust solution, you have to be licensed. And so combining that kind of flexibility and access with a licensed center where you could drop off your child for 10 hours, that doesn't exist anywhere. I think there's a couple other really big differences too. Um, you know, I think the design of the center is really contemporary. And, you know, one thing that childcare has lacked for a really long time is any sense of brand or hospitality. And, you know, where Darian and I really got excited about this was that we could kind of bring childcare into, or bring a new experience into childcare. So our center, the look, the feel of it, it's not a place where parents want to run out the door and get out as fast as they can. And usually actually right. families and parents want to stay as long as they can because the color palette is really beautiful and the furniture is beautiful. And, you know, there's actually real benefits to that too for cognitive development for the children. But, you know, we wanted to just create spaces for families that weren't red, yellow, and blue and had white boy surfaces and just felt like you wanted to get out of there as fast as you could. And I think that's really been received so positively by the families who've been using us. Um, like they'll literally ask us where the furniture is from so they can buy it for their homes. And I think that that's like the ultimate flattery when they really want to bring Rella back to their own spaces. Um, so tell us a little bit how like the last couple of years have been in terms of um, just growing the, the company and the brand and also, you know, how you see it ultimately panning out for the next like five to 10 years of like your expansion and, and what that's going to look like. Cause I know we kind of talked about it, but there are like a lot of adjacent, obviously businesses um, to childcare, like just like office buildings and offices. And, and like, I know my gym has a, like a, an area, but that's more so just like for kids to play. But um, like, tell us a little bit about how you envision that. It's a little weird to answer that question today. Right. Um, uh, while we've been working on this business for three years, we have only really we were only open for five months before we had to close our doors because of COVID, um, and so we're in this little suspended moment. Um, the bummer, the good news, but then the bummer at the same time was that you know the month that we were closing our doors was our first month of being break even, and the business <laughs> had really started to grow and was really successful, and only in you know four months was it able to do that. And that was such a huge victory. And we were literally about to kick off and fundraise to go and open more of these because we had the proof of concept. And then Corona came and, you know, we're actually in Brella right now and it's empty of children and we don't know when children will be back. And so it's definitely changed our plans. Yeah. I mean, actually, I think... The reality is, is like with so many other in industries, the change 
and the adaptation that Corona has forced, a lot of it was in the works or it was waiting to happen. And I think what's going on right now with families is that, you know, this experience of isolation is calling into question a lot of, you know, the social norms of behavior, how families, how parents divide household responsibilities, who works Mm -hmm. on what schedule and how they take care for their kids and how they parent. And so I actually think that out of this experience, there's going to be more diversity in kind of family lifestyles, in family schedules and in preferences, you know, ranging from people that are very hesitant going back into center-based care and wanting to take it one hour at a time to people that are ready today and, you know, have the confidence, uh, especially Umbrella, you know, the users that were coming here and, you know, know our, our high standards around hygiene. And so I think in some ways, our product is very well suited for life after COVID in that families can really make it customized to mm-hmm. their needs and that we can be a support system not just for one type of family, but for a range of different types of families, which ultimately is our mission. You know, we strive to be a form of childcare in which families thrive and that we can be a support system that adapts with families as they change over time. So we're actually excited in some ways because I think this story, you know, has a lot of relevance right now and we really want to help families come out of this and you know with the all of the different life changes that they're experiencing yeah and you know you bring up just kind of the situation after covid and i think one of the things that both pat and i and i'm sure several others have been thinking about is that you know the world is going to look like a different place after this is all said and done however it's almost as if things that were going to happen three four years from now it's going to be accelerated. Like it's going to happen in the next three, four months versus the next three to three to four years. Right. And you know, when Darian, you emailed us and you said parents and children, they're like not okay right now. Uh, you know, I've seen that I, I serve on a school board and I see a lot of the preschool parents, uh, struggling to both, you know, teach their kids and work and cook and be moms and dads. And I mean, they're not, most of them are not suited to teach and raise their kids and like, you know, for those eight hours, right? They usually are with them for the evening. They put them to sleep. They feed them breakfast, whatnot. But early on, I remember when I was, you know, a young kid and my grandma used to raise me, my mom raised me, you know, it, it was like a full-time job. So I feel like if anything, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's going to be a bigger need for childcare because of the fact that people are going to realize how important it is and how much they can't actually do it themselves. I mean, have you heard that from parents? I'm, I'm curious about, you know, the experiences that you two have had uh, during the last month or so with this. We hear it every day. I mean, our parents are literally begging us to open up. And I think the reality is what you're saying is, you know, teaching is a profession and, you know, all of a sudden everybody's being expected to do something, you know, it's like being expected to perform surgery. You know, people go to school and right. learn how to teach. Our te- all of our teachers here are licensed and Darian and I are constantly asking them, okay, well, what advice can we give to our parents? What language do you use? How do you, you know, how do you discipline a child in a school? Because it's all really different. And I do think that these experiences that every family is having at home 
where this is not working, you know, for the majority of families, homeschooling is not working. I think that will just, you know, solidify the place for, you know, childcare and schools in society. You know, I don't think people are going to say, oh, wow, that was great. We don't need schools anymore. I think it's quite the opposite. So what but they're, what they're going to want is, you know, something that's more flexible. You know, and a lot of parents are having to pay tuition right now for schools that they're not using. And I think that there is going to be a lot more demand for something that is more responsive, responsive and flexible to all the changes that are happening. And I think it's also revealed, especially for kids, you know, zero to six, which is our focus at Brella, that there's no virtual product that is going to replace, obviously, the care from a teacher or a caregiver. I mean, obviously babies, right? But there are a lot of virtual and online offerings for preschool age kids. And the reality is their primary source of learning is through social interaction. And nothing is going to create that same nuance of connection online. And we've realized in our own homes just how challenging it is. You know, with a three-year-old on a Zoom class after five minutes, they're just like, whatever. I mean, this is not, it's not giving them what they need. They need to be interacting with other people and with materials in physical space in order to build those links between their motor development, their cognitive development, their social and emotional skills. So I think that the general awareness of that is heightened at this moment. What are the benefits, you know, from that age zero to six? And I think there's a lot of benefits, but of really having that development, right? That cognitive development and the socialization. What are the long-term effects of that? And if we see kids not going back to school for three or six months or beyond that, what type of effect will that have for their long-term, you know, social interactions, their long-term uh, ability to communicate or to even learn or is there any sort of study happening right now or any sort of research that's happening or anything that you guys know uh, that you can share with uh, us and our audience? Sure. I mean, you know, it's, it's tough. We, we, I don't think that there's ever been any study on, you know, depriving children of any type of social interaction for months at a time, other than really like terrifying ones and orphanages and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I think we could talk first about the benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there are a lot of concrete benefits mm-hmm. to center-based care, and that's really why we wanted to go this route. Um, most of them are in the social and emotional skill set that children develop. So that's everything from learning how to share, learning how to take turns, learning how to be patient. But those all sort of directly lead to executive functions that are, you know, things that ultimately later in life allow you to be a leader, to work in an organization, uh, to, you know, engage with people, problem solve, exactly. And so, you know, what what researchers have seen, um, and there's a lot of evidence that children who start schooling early often develop their language skills faster. They, you know, end up performing better in both high school and in college. They have a higher likelihood of graduating from college. Um, They also have a higher likelihood of uh, succeeding in their professions. Um, So it does, ironically, what you're the decisions that a lot of parents make early on in life do have implications um, that are long lasting for their children. 
the situation we're in now is really strange because, you know, all children are going through this. Um, and, you know, this isn't a very natural way for children to learn. I mean, they're social beings. They want to be out. They learn through being with other children and, you know, other children model for them. And so I think, you know, any child development specialist would say this is not ideal for children. But at the same time, you know, there's not really a choice. And I think we all have to be kind and understanding that in this moment, nobody's, you know, intentionally trying to harm our children. Um, so it's, it's tough. I mean, the hope, and I think that there is a lot of pressure on schools to open up again because of the understanding that for so many kids and especially children in lower income neighborhoods where they don't have the resources, school is so critical, especially in those early years, not just to give them food, but really to give them the foundation that they need to be a high functioning adult. And kind of to follow up on that, um, you know, we see studies happening all the time about like, you know, things like whether it might be mental health for an example or whatever, and like when that sort of develops and and what causes, you know, certain functions, you know, not to work as well and that kind of stuff. Like, how does that all play into the the way you approach, um, you know, your, I don't know if it's called a, like not a curriculum, but like what you choose to focus on or teach the kids yeah, from curriculum. a young age and, and um, you know, what is your personal approach to, to that and how, how do you stay on top of all that? Yeah, I mean, there's so much research out there about, you know, the kind of sequencing and the timeline of brain architecture and how much is how much of that foundation is set just from the ages of zero to three and then from three to seven. And then at that point, kind of the primary circuitry is there. And so this is really the main opportunity. And I think that's a huge dimension of our passion around Brella is that, you know, Early childhood education is one of our biggest design opportunities when we think about investing in the future of society, right? Like this is that foundational moment that is shaping generations to come. And, you know, for us, it has a lot to do with obviously addressing like all of a child's needs, all of the different types of physical, social, emotional, cognitive development that are happening. And that varies, you know, in the first two years of life, that is varying radically from month to month. Um, and so, you know, how we approach it, you know, we, and we do have a curriculum. Um, we draw from, you know, a lot of very well-respected uh, philosophies from Montessori to Reggio. Uh, we are not strictly, you know, any one type of school. We're not a Waldorf school, for instance. But I think we draw a lot of the foundational ideas around things like the impact of environment on a child's experience. And so obviously the design of our space, language, how we teach language, how we model language, how we speak to, how teachers speak to each other and the impact that has on children. Um, our space itself is interesting because if you kind of look at the plan of the space, that thematically tells the story of our curriculum. Um, instead of children spending their whole day in a single classroom, we have uh, different types of learning environments. So we're sitting right now in the creative playroom. We have an art lab for not only art, but STEM experiences and sensory play. 
Uh, we have a library, we have an infant nursery, we have a movement studio, we have a garden. Um, and so thematically, those describe, you know, the types of activities that really are the context for a variety of learning. Um, it's really important within each room that, for instance, as an example, there are spaces for group play, group interaction, group projects, and also always spaces for individual work because it's that kind of ebb and flow between the two um, that are really important for developing confidence and resilience and emotional regulation. Um, so there's, you know, it's incredibly thoughtful and intentional. Um, but we like to think that, you know, in a way we are building a new philosophy that makes those principles relevant to the reality of contemporary life, which is this dynamic, this on the go, on the go, this variable experience, which brings, you know, a new set of factors into the experience. Have you guys been communicating at all with the children that, you know, used to come, you know, to the facilities before? And have you guys been discussing how you are going to then now get them back once, you know, hopefully things normalize sooner rather than later? I mean, there's this period of time now where they haven't really interacted with people outside of their own family members. Does that or will that affect them in any way? And is that going to have to alter the way you develop your schedule and curriculum moving forward? Yeah, I think the primary challenge we're going to face is a new wave of separation anxiety. And, you know, we have a wonderful parent educator who we've been working really closely on this, but separation is always a challenge. It's especially a challenge at Brella when you have children that are coming almost every day that are separating potentially for the first time. Um, and so that was always a challenge. We've worked really hard and we've trained our teachers, but I think what's, what we're going to see is after months of being with their families, with their parents, even children who are excellent at separating are going to have a really hard transition saying goodbye and leaving this new routine that they're in. I mean, children love consistency. They love, you know, having access to their parents. And so like they're, they're in a lot of ways thriving. And so to kind of go back to normal routines, mm -hmm. even when they're going back to the schools and their friends they knew, I think there's going to be a lot of challenge for parents. And so, you know, we will work with our families. We will probably create a lot of literature for parents. We'll do a lot of sessions to just kind of help them navigate through that uh, because that's always so emotionally hard for a parent. You know, when you have a child who's hysterical crying and you need to leave because you need to go to work, um, especially mm -hmm. when that kid might be older or past what you thought was a time where they would have separation anxiety. So I think that that's going to be a really big issue. Ironically, people are seeing that now, like even parents, when they go take a shower, kids who wouldn't normally cry are starting to cry. So it's going to be a big challenge for all families. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, we hear like how different industries are being disrupted. Like, for example, education, you know, a lot of uh, disruptions are focused on the personal personalization of education rather than this like one size fits all model where, you know, everyone presumably learns the same way and retains information the same way. How do you see that applying to kids that are like zero to three years old? I know traditionally and, and probably even now it's been like a one size fits all sort of thing where it's like everyone's learning the same thing because you're a baby and, that, and that's pretty much it. Um, do you see it becoming, 
I can like the reason I ask is like I can imagine with things like gene editing and CRISPR and you know you have these like super babies at some point compared to like how babies are now. Um, like, do you see like it becoming more personalized moving forward, and how? Yeah, our philosophy has always been that it's very personalized, mm-hmm. but personalization for a zero to three year old, you know, that's not necessarily done through an algorithm, right? I mean, it's basically just allowing them to learn the way they want to learn. So, you know, what's interesting about a classroom at Brella is that, you know, the kids are not all doing the same thing. So children don't walk into a classroom and there's not a worksheet and they're all not going to color the same worksheet. Uh, They are going to walk into a room where there are a variety of materials like toys or you know, paints or something that are set up in a provocative way. They're literally called provocations. And it basically invites children to play with them as they see fit. And our teachers watch and observe and then help the children in the play that the children are essentially leading. And so in that sense, it is hyper-personalized. You know, each child that walks into the room gets to create their own experience. Obviously, it's curated. And the materials are intentionally placed and then all of it is done in a way to potentially, you know, help children with their fine motor skills or help them, you know, understand color theory. Um, so there's a lot of intention behind it. Uh, but I think that's really the kind of the beauty of that early education is that it has this possibility to just be naturally personalized and individualized in a way that you don't really have to force it. You don't need a lot of science. You don't need technology to do it. It kind of just comes naturally. All you need to do is foster it. The range of what's developmentally appropriate for an 18-month-old, it's it's radically wide, right? Like one 18-month-old may be here, another there. You know, you look at all of their different types of development. And so kids know what's developmentally appropriate for them. And the biggest thing is getting out of their way. And, you know, like Melanie said, it's about observation and then response that is meeting them where they are, meeting the child where he or she, where they are. Um, and so that, and that, that's not something new to Brella either. That's the foundation of Montessori, of Reggio, of Rai. It's really about respect for the child's kind of natural pace of development. And I don't know if you mentioned it already, but I know we talk about how you know, technology, like for example, like virtual daycare and, and algorithms aren't necessarily going to be things that, you know, improve um, the way, you know, you go about it. But how do you see technology um, over time, like being integrated with the process and, and Im- improving the overall, not, not just experience, but the efficiency and, and the, the value of, of it all? Technology plays a huge part of Brella. Uh, you know, it begins with the scheduling, um, but that's probably sort of the simplest aspect of it. So, you know, one critical part of the Brella app is the profile that parents create for their children. And so you can basically tell us everything from what they're allergic to, what their napping behaviors are, what their personality is like. And that sort of becomes the basis from which our teachers can then, you know, really get to know your child very quickly. So we have children being dropped off for the first time almost every day at Brella. And the app that parents use that then our teachers have access to 
allows them to really quickly get to know a child um, in a way that might have taken many conversations or at least, you know, a 20 minute dialogue. And I think that's a really interesting, you know, technological opportunity that you don't really see in schools right now. Um, and then also sort of that feedback then back to the parent about what the child did. Um, so I think that technology can play this amazing supportive role around childcare that doesn't have to be immediately part of taking care of the child. Um, so, you know, everything from, you know, a quick note to the teacher about my son had a really bad night last night that will help the teacher then know, okay, I, you know, might need to give them a little more patience. And then, you know, a nice sort of feedback loop at the end where the teacher can send a picture to the parent and share, you know, a little bit about what the child had done so the parent can, you know, ask the child and get maybe even, you know, continue that conversation or exploration at home. I think at scale, too, when you think about, you know, a network of umbrellas across the country and a family who is in our system who has profiles for their children in our app, they've done that once. And now their information is available to all of our centers. And so our goal really is to build this out so that if you as a family are across the country and need access to care, you don't have to go through all of those barriers again. Um, it's a huge amount of red tape that's eliminated when that information is managed you know, in a more efficient way. Uh, we forgot to note in the beginning that uh, Brent Bolthouse, who introduced us to you essentially um you know we interviewed him twice on the show he's become a good friend and you know he one of our actually people's favorite guests uh on the show and so <laughs> when i first found out about the concept i automatically was like this is awesome like loved it checked it out and one of my favorite components was the fact that there was a space and correct me if i'm wrong for parents to also you know work there and take calls or whatever it may be you know how do you see that playing a role as this whole work from home, you know, work remotely culture becomes a lot more prevalent across, you know, the city, state, country, whatever it may be. You know, do you think that there will be a bigger need for or a bigger desire for parents to actually stay and use uh, your space? I almost feel like it's like a reverse of how it used to be where, you know, you know, the office buildings had their like daycare centers and then right. you would take the kid and you would go work in the office now. Like yeah, that, that model is like the kid. opposite of that. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things like Melanie and I have talked about in the last few weeks is that the reality is you need different spaces for different functions, you know, for different activities and parts of your day. And so one of the things that's so maddening for families right now is that, you know, your kitchen table has become your office, your partner's office, your kid's classroom, playroom, and the meal eating environment. And it's crazy. And unless you have a robotic kitchen table, like it's never going to fulfill those needs in a good way. Um, and so, you know, I think even as we see potentially more people working from home or working remotely, uh, it's really challenging to work from home. I mean, there's a lot out there about just the sense of isolation, the impacts of that on productivity. Um, and so just even having a place like Brello where parents can come and get a few hours of heads down work here, maybe break it up if they live locally, can go back home as well and not put all of that pressure on the home, I think uh, provides a huge relief. Uh, on the flip side of that, 
some parents, especially, you know, first time parents of a newborn really like the idea of proximity. Um, and for parents that are easing back into work or in the midst of a career change, maybe they're starting their own business and they want a place where they can, you know, be close to their child, but have that physical separation of space that makes it productive. We're a great solution. You you mentioned something super early on too that, you know, prior to this whole situation coming, uh, you were both looking to fundraise and, you know, expand, uh, Brella, uh, and I mean, after four months of doing it and, you know, getting to the break-even point, I mean, that just is phenomenal and, you know, props to you guys for doing that. And I'm sure that, you know, once everything kind of comes back that that will continue, but don't you think that now more than ever, because of this situation, that an expansion is even more of something that could become a reality and more of a need as opposed to something that you two thought you wanted? Yeah. I mean, I think that there is definitely a huge opportunity coming out of this. And I think that there's on a couple fronts. I mean, you know, from the demand standpoint, I think demand will be huge. And especially for a childcare provider that can address not only, you know, the demands around childhood development, but also around safety and cleanliness. And, you know, we are hyper vigilant around cleanliness at Brella. We have professional cleaners come through every night. Our staff is cleaning throughout the day. So I think there will be new standards to meet, but I think we're really poised well for that. But I think there's like another really exciting opportunity, and that's just from the real estate standpoint. And, you know, as we were going into this fundraise, you know, one of the biggest challenges is finding locations that are cost efficient. You know, we want to be in the center of, you know, where people are working and living and playing that those rents are high. And I think that there's a really exciting opportunity for us coming out of this. You know, there's going to be a huge shakeup in the real estate world. And if we're poised in a way that we could take advantage of that and secure some really favorable terms, I think we'll really be able to scale this potentially faster than we had ever thought. On the flip side of being kind of opportunistic about the real estate moment, I think we've always told not told told the story in a genuine way to landlords that this is a priority amenity and to think of childcare not as a tenant but as an anchor amenity to properties and i think that you know the press that has come out about you know the pain points that families are experiencing experiencing during this i think that'll even be more of a mainstream uh, story that will be a good tailwind for us. Do you ever think that there may be an opportunity here for a franchising for franchising umbrella for existing owners of childcare places that might, you know, be closing down their businesses but already have some, you know, semblance of a, you know, childcare facility that you can kind of go in and redesign, rebrand and almost take over? as opposed to, you know, being the ones that are in search of all these different, you know, great terms. Do you think that that would ever be a part of the plan? Yeah, it's something we talk about. Um, It's definitely on our minds. I think, you know, prior to Corona, um, our stance around franchising was that, you know, it's a possibility for the future. It's so important, especially in childcare, I think, to 
have quality control and really kind of maintain close ownership of the initial um, centers. And so it's important, but there's a lot of precedence, you know, when you look at the larger providers that are national players in childcare scaling through acquisition, um, there's a lot of good precedence of that. And so it's obviously on our minds, it's incredibly helpful in terms of the licensing process to identify sites that are already licensed um, and where from a building code perspective, you're not going through a change of use. So right. I think there's also there's also just a cool element to franchising too. We, we get requests for franchise opportunities yeah. all the time and they're always from yeah. moms. And I think that this is a business that a lot of young women really connect to because they felt the pain of childcare. They like the design, they like the solution. And so, you know, I think that there is a really cool, like built in, you know, franchisee world of moms who've left their careers to raise their children. So, you know, it's something we think about. It's something that presents itself as an opportunity to us almost organically, but you know, mm-hmm. to successfully franchise, and, and a lot of our advisors actually are successful franchise owners. So um, we have a lot of knowledge that comes into this. You really have to get the the product down tight, and you know, we we still need to kick the tires on this one in order to get it there. This it's going to be really interesting yeah. to see how everything plays out. Yeah. I think everyone's just sort of on the edge of their seat in every industry, just yeah. trying to see how everything <laughs> comes together after all this, but. I'm I'm really excited about the future, and and we love what you both are doing, and yeah. um, we wish you all the best and good fortune, and uh, we have no doubt, you know, you'll be able to come back strong and back at it in no time. So yeah, um, hopefully we can yeah. come check out that space soon once yeah, we can get out of our home. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah, we're excited to meet you guys in person as well, and thank you guys so much for hopping on, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to love hearing your story, and we'll have questions and we'll field them to you guys uh, once our listeners. Uh, check it out but thank you guys so much and uh keep keep going and uh hope to see you guys on the other side yeah you too stay healthy yeah thank you